The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, October 7th, 2023. Cages or wings, which do you prefer? Ask the birds. Fear or love, baby, don't say the answer. Actions speak louder than... Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 14th digest of this third volume covering Monday, October 2nd through Friday, October 6th, 2023. Movie Musical Monday. Tick, tick, boom. This has been on my to-watch list for a while. It is Tick, Tick, Boom, a musical released on Netflix in November of 2021, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda Yes, that Lin-Manuel Miranda. Produced by Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, Julie O, and others. Starring Andrew Garfield, Alexandra Shipp, and others. I picked those two out because they are the main character and the main character's love interest. But they are also Spider-Man and Storm. <laughs> yeah, Andrew Garfield from the second Amazing, uh, Amazing Spider-Man movies. Uh, and Alexandra Ship played Storm when they started to do, you know, the whole first class stuff. So she was Storm in Apocalypse and uh, Dark Phoenix. She was most recently in Barbie as well. So Tick, Tick, Boom is based on the musical of the same name, which originally had its uh, first um presentation or its first iteration as um, Boho Days, it was called. Jonathan Larson is the composer, lyricist, um, book writer for the musical. You might know Jonathan Larson from the musical Rent, which um, really in the mid-90s had an impact on musical theater, Broadway. It eventually was a movie as well. And Rent is... Just one musical in a long line of musicals that help to reshape what theater can be. If you think about Hair, if you think about Jesus Christ Superstar, or any of those rock musicals, rock operas, Rent, Spring Awakening, all the way down to Hamilton as well. What is Tick, Tick, Boom about? It tells the story of an aspiring composer named John who lives in New York City in 1990. John is worried he has made the wrong career choice to be part of the performing arts as a composer, and he's struggling to complete a sci-fi musical he's been working on for eight years. He needs to get people to come see it. He needs to write one last great song for it. And all while this is going on, his relationships with his friends, his loved one, uh, basically are suffering. The story is semi-autobiographical, and as stated by Larson's family in many places, it's all completely true, except for the parts that Jonathan Larson made up. So it originally was a solo piece of theater by Jonathan Larson, which you can see videos of on YouTube, and he called it a rock monologue, and I kind of love that. Um... You know, I love that idea of a composer just presenting a material in one long stream of stuff, you know, whether it's monologues, whether it's music. This is not new. There's been men, there have been many performers who do this sort of thing. Think of someone like Spalding Gray, if you've ever seen his performances, that feels like this is what this might be. So then all that material. Uh, eventually became Tick, Tick, Boom, and you can see performances of this as well. Um, and it was, I don't think it was actually performed, um, because then, um, well, if it was performed, it was performed as a solo piece, or Jonathan Larson did it with uh, a small band and two other people. Uh, so expanding it from a solo piece to a trio piece, But then he started working on Rent, and when Rent opened, Jonathan Larson had passed away in uh, 1996, and then Tick, Tick, Boom was reworked as a 
Oh, here it is. Then it was reworked as a three-person show off-Broadway in 2001. So that's how it goes. Um, so the videos that you see on YouTube, you might see some solo performances of Jonathan Larson. You might see some performances with Larson and other people, but the actual script of Tick, Tick, Boom as presented by all three people instead of just one voice. Um, that happens in 2001. And in that original cast was a gentleman known as Raul Esparza as John, who was getting a lot of work for some reason <laughs> at that time. Um, I didn't really care for his performances. So, ouch, did I say that out loud? Anyway, and the musical was reworked by uh, playwright David Auburn, who authored the play Proof, which is also amazing and only has, I think, four four actors in the play. And it also is a really good movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, Anthony Hopkins, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, Hope Davis. Yeah, really good movie, really good play. Um, just so, you know, having David Auburn as the new book writer yeah, that's great. That's that's high marks there. So Tick, Tick, Boom, I've never seen the stage play. I only know the soundtrack. And, I, and as I said, I took a while to actually see the movie. But I'm glad I finally did. I've been talking for a while how I've been falling out of love with theater. And I needed this musical, this movie. I needed this now. I definitely needed this at multiple times in my life and career, you know, the mid-90s, the early 2000s, in 2020 for sure I could have used this. I don't know why I waited so long to watch it when it did drop on Netflix. I think everybody was talking about it and I was I just wanted my own fresh eyes on it, I guess you could say. And uh, I finally watched it this week and watched it late at night when I can't sleep. And it just worked. It it really worked for me. It's smart. It's well acted. It's well sung. It helps that having Miranda as director means that he's going to hire actual musical theater actors in various roles. But I have to give it to Andrew Garfield, who, you know, his performance of Jonathan Larson, especially if you've seen videos of Larson, totally works. Totally works. They have very much the same kind of energy. I feel like when I watch Garfield on the screen, he has that controlled manic energy, right? He has this like underlying current as an actor that feels like he's a river that just keeps going, moves around rocks, moves around trees. But if it stops, it's either going to combust, evaporate, or just fall off a waterfall. And that energy is so perfect for Jonathan Larson, the composer. And I can see why people were calling for Andrew Garfield to win some awards. I don't know if necessarily it was that great as held up to other people um, at that time in whatever great movies were coming out in 2021, but it is really, really good. Alexandra Shipp is very good as Susan, his love interest. She's so understated. They took away her songs from the stage version, so she has less to do. But, you know, some people might say, well, that diminishes her performance. I don't think so at all. I think it hits for me. And then when she does get a chance to sing, it just means that much more. Because in the stage play, you have three actors, but two of the actors play multiple roles. And with Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie, it's basically Jonathan Larson doing a stage version of Tick, Tick, Boom for an audience and for us, the viewers. But then we get flashes into his actual life. So none of those, well, those people in his real life don't usually sing, even though they do. It's meant to be uh, kind of like a, a, a narrative device, and it works. I think it works well for the movie. Not to mention the way the movie is shot, the the camera is constantly moving. The choice of framing sequences can be fun. The choreography is good. There's a lot of like otherworldly fantasy stuff to it. It's a musical. It's a musical that shouldn't be real. It's told in Jonathan Larson's mind to an audience. 
you know, the music can dictate the pace. The, the damn thing is called tick, tick, boom, right? You're waiting for an explosion. It's about New York. It's about seconds of your life ticking away. It's about artistic expression and the need to create and also the need to hide from your creation when it's not working. Um, there's uh, There are a number of sequences where all of this plays out in um, in ways that really shape and show what the musical is about. There's a, a song called called No More. That is a really good sequence for this. Um, Sunday is a good sequence for this. Uh, the therapy session, and there are others. Not to mention that constant ticking, right? Like you're racing against time or something's trying to catch up to you. And Larson is racing to do something meaningf meaningful before he hits 30. So what he's doing is trying to create this musical that he's been working on for eight years. He's got to get it prepared for a workshop. He needs people to come see it. He needs investors. He needs this to prove to himself that he can be a composer. And it's all that stuff that was so inspirational, you know, exactly because it is about musical theater and creation and time. Plus the movie has a ton of theatrical cameos actors, musical riffs from other shows that are going on in the lyrics or in the background. It takes place in 1990, and it often comments on the theater world at that time in very funny ways that um, you either get or you don't get. I mean, I got it, you know, especially there are a bunch of posters behind him that don't actually say the title of a musical, but it will just say mega musical or musical from that movie you saw or musical from the UK. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Because musical theater did have a little bit of a dip from like the late 80, 80s to the mid, um, early 90s. You know, it took a while for new things to take shape. Um, and yet it's set in 1990, but feels totally topical and modern and exactly like it could fit in 2021 when it was made or 2023 when I saw it. Uh, Miranda as a director is smart to throw in many, many undercurrents to the musical Rent, the musical that would make Jonathan Larson uh, a household name. Uh, you get to see actors, you get to see hear some dialogue, some music, uh, certain events in the movie, such as when the power goes out and John has to work by candlelight. Uh, the AIDS crisis is going on through all around him throughout this movie and also personally with his best friend. And then you get to the end, you get to the, the presentation of his musical. And after working eight years and struggling to find that last song and and breaking up with his girlfriend, he presents it to the world only to be told, okay, now write your next one. When I tell you the breath of air that I had to take in when I heard that, make no mistake, you do not have to create musical theater or be part of the theater world to understand this character's journey in this movie, the warts and all, right? Be any kind of creator, anybody who does art, anybody who just creates, maybe it's not even art, you are going to get it. It's good. It's really good. And as a musical theater, um, as a person in musical theater all my life, uh, you know, that it took this long to see it is kind of weird. But as I mentioned, I fully appreciated it for many, many other reasons. Um, a lot of the actors, the cameos are people that I love. A lot of the musicals are musicals that I love. The situations, I just get it, right? There is no expiration on when you can create. There is no expir expiration on your creativity. There shouldn't be anyway. And hitting a certain age like this character, can make you feel that way. I certainly understand that. And I, I'm i so glad I watched this. I think it's the movie that I needed at this moment in, in an odd way. Um, I don't know what that means for me post-watching this movie, but 
Maybe if you're feeling any of that race, any of that ticking sound in your own head, maybe this movie might speak to you as well. Timeline Trivia Tuesday for October 2023, Part 1. Comics History, Comic Book Trivia for Anniversaries, First Issues, First Appearances. Let's celebrate 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. We start 10 years ago, October of 2013. As you'll hear soon, or maybe you already have heard, uh, 10 years ago gave us the first issue of Afterlife with Archie by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, Francesco Francavilla, Jack Morelli, The Archie Gang versus Zombies, a series that would run for 10 issues over a number of years. And as I mentioned, by the time you hear, hear this digest, um, maybe I've released the book club episode on these 10 issues, a conversation conversation that I had with Matt Williams, just in time for its 10th anniversary. From Marvel Comics 10 years ago, Ultimate Comics Cataclysm Point One by Joshua Hale Fialkov. This is where the main 616 Galactus comes tearing through the Ultimate Universe at the age at the end of Age of Ultron. And it would be followed by Cataclysm, the Ultimate's Last Stand. Cataclysm Spider-Man, Cataclysm X-Men, and others. And then this would ultimately, haha, be followed up by yet another relaunch of the Ultimate titles at that time, where we would get Miles Morales leading a group of the Ultimates. I believe at the time there were rumors that this would be the end of the line of Ultimate books, but it didn't turn out that way. Ten years ago, October 2013, Two from Image, Rocket Girl Number 1 by Amy Reeder and Brandon Montclair, a teenage cop from a high-tech future sent back in time to 1986. And as she pieces together clues to a crime against time, she discovers that the future that she calls home, an alternate reality version of 2013, shouldn't exist. This also ran for 10 issues, all the way up to 2017, and I read in the wiki page, they claimed the delays were because the creators would eventually go on to create the new Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur for Marvel at the time, but that was released in 2015, and they had, on, they had only released seven issues of Rocket Girl in two years. So, I mean, it's just a slow creative team. <laughs> and then also from Image, Pretty Deadly, number one, by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Emma Rios, no relation. I picked this up because of Emma Rios. There would be three different volumes or three different stories. One through five was a story, six through ten was a story, and then there was another five-issue series called Pretty Deadly, The Rat. And it's a series that marries the magical realism of Sandman with the Western brutality of Preacher, where Death's daughter rides rides the wind on a horse made of smoke and her face bears the skull marks of her father. Her tale of retribution is as beautifully lush as it is unflinchingly savage. I have an unreleased interview that I did, an email interview that I did with Emma Rios. I can't find it. I, I, it must be before I did CGS. I don't remember, but it's not in my Gmail, which goes all the way back to 2005, 2006. So it's like, oh, where is that interview? So maybe I'll find it someday. And from uh, first, second books, 10 years ago, we got Battling Boy hardcover by Paul Pope. This was preceded by the Death of Haggard West preview. And then there were some sequels, Rise of Aurora West and Fall of the House of West. Battling Boy was almost like Commandy meets Omac in a way. So you have a city called Acropolis, and there are gangs who kidnap children. And then the local hero of this series, city, Haggard West, is killed. So the city is helpless, and then here comes Battling Boy, 
a demigod from another world who has reluctantly arrived, forced by his alternately overbearing and neglectful parent to undertake a rite of passage. And he's powered by magical t-shirts. He defends the city, and but he's also struggling with his vulnerabilities. And then there's a side story with Haggard West's daughter, Aurora, who attempts to take her father's place. Really great story, fun story, fun packaging in the way it was released. And um, I think I read somewhere that um, this might even have yet another chapter, Um, but we'll see when that comes. And then from DC New 52, you know, we get a lot of Batman Superman comics where they team up in the same comic or they share the same title. But now, 10 years ago, we get Superman slash Wonder Woman, number one, by Charles Soule and Tony Daniel. This would run for 29 issues, and it would explore the relationship between the two. October 2013 also gave us the first issue of Sandman Overture, a six-issue series by Neil Gaiman, acting as a prequel of sorts to the original Sandman series. Your question comes from this story... Who was the artist that worked with Gaiman for this new Sandman tale? Let's go 20 years ago, October 2003, from Marvel Comics NYX or NYX number one by Joe Quesada, Joshua Middleton. This only ran seven issues, but I was like, wait a minute. I thought it ran way more than that. So that's celebrating 20 years, which means... We're coming up on issue three of NYX, which would be the first comic book appearance of X-23, Laura, or Wolverine. Uh, 20 years ago, we got Thanos number one by Jim Starlin and Al Milgram and Company, which would run for 12 issues. The first six were by Jim Starlin. It would be the last six when Keith Giffen and Ron Lim would take over which is where Marvel Cosmic would get a whole new reboot. We would get Thanos, the Samaritan storyline. We would get the Drax miniseries. And all of that would lead to Annihilation. So 20 years ago, Thanos number one starts that ball rolling. Keeping with Marvel 20 years ago, Hulk Cray, one of six by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. We already had Spider-Man Blue. We already had Daredevil Yellow. Now we have Hulk Gray, and eventually we will get Captain America White. We also had Amazing Spider-Man 500, released 20 years ago. And from Image Comics, this is the big one, Walking Dead number one, celebrating 20 years in October uh, 2003, or from October 2003. Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore. This would run 193 issues, ending in 2019, Spawning TV shows, games, merchandise, tours, you name it. So your question comes from Walking Dead. Although the comic and the TV show primarily take place in Georgia, in which state was the comic book version of Rick Grimes originally a policeman in? Let's go 30 years ago, October of 1993, we had from Marvel the Gambit miniseries, one of four, his first title, by Howard Mackey, Lee Weeks, and Klaus Janssen, giving us a little bit more into his backstory and the guilds. I really liked that miniseries. They were also doing Siege of Darkness, a story uh, spread out through the Midnight Suns titles, like Doctor Strange, Ghost Rider, Night Stalkers, The Darkhold, Morbius, and others. Malibu Comics, they were continuing their Ultraverse line with Nightman number one, Sludge number one, and Solution number one. From DC Comics, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special number one, the first of three specials by, again, Loeb and Tim Sale, which would eventually lead to Batman The Long Halloween and the Dark Victory title and also Catwoman, is it When in Rome, I think? Uh, 30 years ago, Vertigo had their first crossover, October of 1993, their first and probably only crossover, entitled Children's Crusade by Neil Gaiman, Chris Bacalow. 
This would spin off into annuals such as Black Orchid, Animal Man, Swamp Thing, Doom Patrol, Arcana. Uh, and it's about uh, the dead boy detectives who are going after a group of missing children who have apparently been taken to a land called Free Country. And that's where other children throughout other various Vertigo titles come into play, like Susie from Black Orchid, Maxine Baker from Doom, uh, from Animal Man, Teffy Holland from Swamp Thing, Dorothy Spinner from Doom Patrol, and Tim Hunter from Arcana. And then, after several miniseries and two annuals, Robin gets his first series. His first ongoing series, not only for Tim Drake, but for anyone named Robin. This was by Chuck Dixon, Tom Grummet, Scott Hanna, Adrian Roy on colors for that first issue. And the first issue gave us two covers, one which was foil embossed. This would run for 183 issues all the way to 2009. And your final question for this segment comes from this issue. In the first issue of Robin, spinning out of the events of Night Quest, Tim Drake all but gets thrown out of the Batcave by uh, Jean-Paul Valley. And Tim uses his own personal souped-up car to do it. Although the car didn't have its first appearance in this issue, what is the name of the Robin car that Tim used? Here are your answers. From 10 years ago, October 2013, who was the artist that worked on Sandman Overture? That would be J.H. Williams III. Your question from 20 years ago, October 2003. Although the Walking Dead comic and the TV show take place primarily in Georgia, Rick Grimes, the comic book version, is from the state of Kentucky. Cynthiana, Kentucky, which is where Robert Kirkman was raised and where Tony Moore was born. 30 years ago, October of 1993, in the Robin first issue, if you didn't already get introduced to the car in Detective Comics, this would be your first exposure to the Redbird, the car known as Redbird. All right, we'll continue with Timeline Trivia Tuesday Part 2 for October in a later digest. New Comics Wednesday, New Comics Wednesday for the week of October 4th, but we're going to start with preview recommendations. This is from the October previews for books mostly shipping in December. We are slowly creeping up on 2024. That is scary. Starting with from Boom Studios, something that I talked about before, Animal Pound by Tom King and Peter Gross. Uh, we're getting the first issue solicitation, one of four. I'm not going to get the physical, but, you know, I want you to because I want <laughs> I want this book to be successful. Um, I need to cut back, but if you're someone who still likes physical, you still like single issues, this reimagining of the Animal Farm story is probably going to be amazing. I think what I'm going to do is just wait for the eventual collected edition because I think Boom Studios is going to do an amazing job with that. It might be a better read to read it collected, but, you know, again, some of you out there have to support it in the single issues or we may not get that. Although it's Tom King, retailers are going to, are going to back this up, no doubt. One of my favorite adaptations of this story was from 1996 from Mariner Books. It was Animal Farm as illustrated by Ralph Steadman. And I adored that version. I thought it had the right energy for the story. And I'm looking forward to this one as well. From Scout Comics, Maze Agency number one is coming back to comic stands by Mike W. Barr, the original co-creator, and artist Silvano Beltramo. 
This is about Jennifer Mays and Gabriel Webb as they as they try to figure out fair play mysteries. Fair play meaning that the creators want the readers to also figure it out. Original artists include Alan Davis and Adam Hughes. This has been around since 1988 and is now making its reappearance. If you collect cover homages, we have uh, two of them that are riffing on the original Kevin Maguire Justice League number one cover with all of the teammates standing there. It's a bird's eye view and you're looking down at them. Uh, we have from Ahoy Comics, Wrong Earth, We Could Be Heroes number two by Jamal Eigel. And from Dynamite, Darkwing Duck, Justice Ducks number one. The cover is by Roger Langridge, who is also writing that story. So again, if you're like me and you enjoy when people do these kind of things, they have two of them of the same cover, which is pretty amazing. From DC Comics, uh, we have solicits for Neil Before Zod number one by Joe Casey and Dan McDade. This is all about General Zod as he tries to rule and create and look over New Krypton. I'm imagining this is all spinning out of maybe the Bendis stuff or maybe the most recent Philip Kennedy Johnson stuff. I'm not quite sure now that I say that. Um, but as someone who likes that character, I was like, oh, this is interesting, giving General Zod his own title. The artist was the artist on Jersey Gods from Image and also did art for a bunch of Doctor Who stories. This might be the, you know, the most high profile of, of some of the stuff that he's done. And I've longed to do a General Zod deep dive and try to read all of his appearances in all the many various incarnations of that character. So yeah, as a preview recommendation, this is a high one for me or, or from me for me, maybe not for you, but definitely for me. So I, sometimes when I do these recommendations, I like to do, the, do them so that I remember what I talked about in, you know, in a couple months time. And then let's see, we have the final issue of Danger Street, Danger Street 12 of 12. Looking forward to wrapping up that series. And also we have another DC facsimile for New Teen Titans number one from 1980 by George Perez, Marv Wolfman. Of course I'm going to get that. I always get whenever they do any kind of recreation of that uh, issue, that story. Apparently this one will also have um, ads, uh, the same ads and the same content as it did back in 1980. They're also reprinting the four-issue Batman Year One story with original printing colors and period-correct ads, which I was like, okay, you know? It's almost like these these publishers, DC especially, you, you put out a book, you put it out in softcover, you put it out in hardcover, you put it out in omnibus, deluxe edition. Oh, now we're just gonna go ahead and release them as single issues again. So once these things hit, make sure you, you're very aware if you're going back issue bin diving, um, you know, are you picking up the original issues or are you picking up these facsimiles? Okay, now let's go to the recommendations for October 4th for this week. We have from Marvel, the first issue of Gods is finally on the stands after all the many weeks that I was talking about it. Jonathan Hickman, Valerio Schitti. Uh, I finally get to see what this damn book is about. $9.99. I'm sure I will do a review somewhere down the road. From Image Comics, we have Transformers number one from Daniel Warren Johnson from Skybound and the Energon universe spinning out of Void Rivals. $4.99. We'll be covering this on a CGS episode that may be out by the time you hear this. Also from Image, Cosmic Detective, original graphic novel by Jeff Lemire, Matt Kint, David Rubin. This was a Kickstarter. It is $17.99. Jack Kirby meets Chinatown. 
an epic science fiction mystery that asks, when a god is murdered, who solves the crime? That creative team pairing, that's a must for me. And just like General Zod, just like Tom Taylor, um, just like Tom King, Grant Morrison, I've been meaning to also do a Lemire uh, reading project. And maybe I just turn it into like a Jeff Lemire, Matt Kent dual reading project. But, you know, that just goes on my future list. From Dark Horse, we have The Breather's Trade Paperback by Justin Madsen for $29.99, collecting the nine-issue series plus a bonus zero-issue. Now, they um, Justin Madsen released eight issues from another publisher, and then that publisher went belly up. So now we're getting this collected edition, so you can finally read the full story, which is about a small cast of survivors who live on a planet that no longer can sustain them, well, live on Earth. Um, and it's a, uh, listed as a thoughtful dystopia where a single breath of fresh air can kill. I learned about this, I think, either this title or this creator through the Indie Spinnerack podcast many, 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 many years ago. I think I picked up one of the original self-published comics from one of the many stores that I went to when I visited um, C2E2 for the first or second time because they have so many freaking comic shops out there. So I would like to know how this ends. Um, I think you can read issue nine from Justin's website. I think you could even read the entire thing, but here we go. Here's a nice collected edition. From NBM, we have Prince in comics hardcover. Yes, talking about Prince, the musician. Uh, they also did a David David Bowie in comics um, story. $27.99. This one is by Nicholas Finney and Tony Lorenzo and various artists. And it is just a bunch of different stories chronicling his life. All right, there you go. There are your previews for October and your recommendations for the week of October 4th. The Daily Reads Thursday, Injustice, Part 1. Somewhere along the way, possibly back in Volume 1 of the Digests, I decided I wanted to add another reading project to my already huge list, and it was for writer Tom Taylor. Now, certainly this was because of the success of the current Nightwing run. Some of it was from emails that I got from a few people who said that they, they really enjoyed Tom Taylor and Injustice. I've seen versions of these characters pop up in various multiverse stories, all the way down to Dawn of DC, where Tom Taylor's Adventures of Superman John Kent miniseries featured a cast of characters from the Injustice universe. So for this segment, I'm going to talk loosely about the first installment of Injustice that I read. So that would be uh, Injustice, Gods Among Us, or Year One. Uh, it was released digitally for 36 chapters and then physically for 12 issues. And what they did is every three digital chapters they put into one comic. I talked a little bit about this on the Digest for September 16th of this year, uh, where I talked loosely about the first six issues, mostly because this is one of those titles that I'm using to read for my 500 uh, comic challenge. I'm reading it on the DCU app in digital format. Uh, this was released January through December of 2013, 10 years ago. Um... <laughs> And I thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy reading the digital release, so you get little bite-sized stories. The story moves quickly. The point of views shift a lot, which is a lot of fun. And um, I knew the premise going in. I remember watching cutscenes from the game, but 
I thought, let me read it as part of, you know, Tom Taylor's early work. It's not his earliest work, but it's close to it enough. So I was like, obviously, this is the big thing. And it spawned several different versions after year one. So I was like, okay, let's read it. And again, thoroughly enjoy it. It is not what I expected. I think it's probably not what you're going to expect either if you've never read it. So some of the bigger takeaways, you can see right from the beginning that this is not a divergent Earth, right? So I'm sure when they first were releasing this, even though DC has a multiverse, they probably were just considering it, you know, a, a licensed property for the game, ad advertisement for the game. And then if they were ever to cross over into the mainstream universe, you could tell right away who these characters were. So it's not a divergent Earth. It's not like everything was the same as mainstream DC up until a certain event, up until the event that creates the Injustice universe, because the fabric of these characters and the story, it's very different from the mainstream DCU. The costuming, very different. Superman and Lex Luthor's relationship, very different. Not everyone knows each other's secret identities. So you have certain characters in place, just like the mainstream DC Universe, but I don't believe the history is the same. And I say this fully knowing that I believe there's a prequel series that I will eventually get to. So that larger notion... Um, spoke to me because I know I've heard people say they don't want to read it because why do they want to read about, uh, well, you know, why do they want to read about an evil Superman? But he's not our Superman. He's not our Superman that goes bad. He's just a Superman, you know. Um, it's a giant what-if story, you know. Kingdom Come played with some of this same setup where Joker kills in Metropolis and he kills Lois Lane. And what does Superman do about that? And in Kingdom Come, Magog decides to kill Joker. People love him for it. The superheroes retire, and we see what a mess that makes. In this universe, Superman kills Joker. And some people are okay with it. But then he goes too far, trying to eliminate all murder and war. And then we go from there, you know. So... I don't know, I think it's funny, you know, people don't want to read about evil Superman stories, but a lot of the premise of that comes from stuff that we hold in high regard, whether it's Earth 3, the crime syndicate, Kingdom Come, Red Sun, you know, I mean, or even Mark Wade. I mean, he hates these kind of stories, yet he wrote similar stories in at Boom Studios when he did Irredeemable and incorruptible, I guess, you know, so I don't know. I, I feel totally okay with being able to separate that this is, these are not the characters that we know. And part of that is the fun because then you have to get to know these versions and you quickly realize that this universe is built on a foundation that is completely different than our own mainstream DC universe. So if I go loosely through the issues, every three, I'm basically talking about these issues as if they are, you know, three chapters in each issue. One through three is the catalyst. Chapters one through three in issue one are the catalyst. In issue two, four through six is when Superman kills Joker. We get a Green Arrow and Harley Quinn story. Superman comes to the UN to talk about what he's going to do after the fact of killing Joker. I mean, this is all still sort of like setup mode. Then you get to issue three, which is chapter seven through nine, where the U.S. tries to retaliate and use criminals to kidnap the Kents. And that's like their big mistake right there, right? Like, if this universe is anything, everybody overreacts. <laughs> and Batman even says to the president, you don't touch a man's parent you know, a man's parents. So it's it's another example of how this world, um, it's not quite corrupt like Earth 3, but it's definitely tilted when it comes to its morals. And they imprison the Kents 
in the largest mirror in the world in the Andes salt flats, which I totally loved. And then the last story in this chapter featured Wonder Woman and Ares. Tom Taylor likes to, every now and then, do these little side stories, and they usually are very personal, or they bring a question about to the readers that um, I find quite interesting. So, for instance, Wonder Woman and Ares, Ares is saying to her, what happens if you and this man-god have a child? Who is going to stop that child, you know? Uh, issue 4, chapters 10 through 12, Superman and Batman talk. This is the sequence of events where Aquaman is not happy with Superman trying to claim the Earth because Aquaman is a king of over 70% of the Earth. And we get wild, just big stuff, right? We get the Kraken. We get Superman lifting Atlantis and putting it into a desert to threaten Aquaman. It's like... All of these people flexing their power and their strength, which makes sense if it's based off of off of a video game, you know. But it also shows how fragile these friendships are, which is another example of why this is not the, the, the universe that we know. In Justice 5, chapters 13 through 15, the Flash, we get a Flash chapter where he is having second thoughts. And this is just Taylor's way to... Uh, take a break, tell personal stories to maybe move away from the heavy quality and the dark quality and to show that fundamentally they are still heroes even if they are making all the wrong choices. Uh, and then we get a big battle in Arkham. Um, this leads to issue 6, chapters 16 through 18, a battle with Solomon Grundy, Nightwing dies... The reactions to that sets everybody off into a whole different way. We start to see the factions really split up. Superman has his Justice League. Batman has a whole group of heroes that I'm calling his outsiders. And um, you see that there's this balance going on. You know, Superman lost somebody. Now Batman has lost somebody. In Justice 7, chapters 19 through 21, uh, we get Kevin McGuire doing the artwork on a Billy Batson chapter with a very chilling ending where he says, what is this doing to the young Billy that the older Captain Marvel is siding with Superman and allowing all this stuff to happen, right? He can feel that changing a young Billy. I really, I really like that. And it it made me think Taylor likes to talk about corruption every now and then. I feel like that's what Deceased is about as well, even though I haven't read it. Um, this is where we learn that Luther is still alive, that he is friends with Superman. Batman has a spy, maybe several, in Superman's camp, which is great. Uh, and he replaces Hawkgirl onto Superman's team, and we'll find out later who that is. In Justice 8, 22 through 24, we get uh, Luther saying to Superman, okay, you need to make a speech to the world so that they fully understand what's going on. And right in the middle of the speech, Calabac and Parademons and people from Apocalypse show up and there's a huge battle. And of course, Superman has to make a decision. He has this conversation with Flash in speed time and he says, look, I can end this. And Flash says, oh, you just want my permission. And he, he doesn't really give him permission, but Superman goes and ends it. And he just basically evaporates the entire invasion. Now, they're all parademons. So, you know, what are the moral, moral implications of parademons from Apocalypse as opposed to someone like the Joker or humans? I don't know. Um, but it's a good chapter. It completely escalates things. And now the people are on Superman's side. And you get this really cool confrontation between Superman and Kalibak, where Kalibak's like, you can't kill me, I'm a god. And Superman says, I don't care. And he just smashes Kalibak. I don't know if he kills him, but he definitely smashes him into the ground. And um, it's definitely a ramping up of events. So then we get to Injustice 9, chapters 25 through 27, Everybody's talking about the invasion. There are some 
great scenes with Superman's camp versus Batman's camp and how they are reacting to this. Even the Kents are not keen on what Clark is doing. They see it as Clark having a super tantrum, just like he did when he was a kid and he lost a blanket. They are explaining this to Luther, and, he's, and they say, A day will come when the world needs to be saved from our son. Find a way to save him, too. I did not expect that from the Kents, although it makes sense. Um, there's a whole thing about Luther developing a super pill so that they can create an army for Superman to watch over all the world. And then we figure out that Hawkgirl has been replaced by Martian Manhunter. Leading to uh, Injustice 10, chapters 28 through 30, because of Batman replacing Hawkgirl, again, this sort of one-for-one, Superman decides he's going to out Batman's identity to the world. Batman is prepared. He has this thing called Protocol Icarus, takes out the entire watchtower, but still Superman, Luther, Cyborg, um, Damien, at, at Damien's suggestion, They find a way to get it out there. Bruce Wayne is Batman. And it, this is it. Like, everybody just feels like they have to scatter. Alfred says to Bruce, look, I have a list of everything to take from the manor just in case of this kind of thing. And um, the Justice League, they come to the Batcave and they talk to Batman. But it's not Batman. It is Martian Manhunter disguised as Batman. He tries to flee, um, but he gets in a confrontation with Superman and Wonder Woman especially, and he says to Wonder Woman, two aliens, meaning himself and Superman, and you always followed the one who looked like you. I've seen the violence in you. And he's just about, I don't know, maybe ready to kill Wonder Woman, and Superman zaps her with his heat vision, apparently killing Martian Manhunter. There's a little side story in this section with a young boy who was once rescued by Superman and who misses what Superman used to be. And he even says, before he became all hard and dark because people supposedly needed him to. I thought this was almost like Taylor preemptively stopping people from criticizing injustice in a way. Almost like saying, look, we get it. We get that even though this is a what-if story that is dark and about an evil Superman, there was a reason behind it, right? We know what we're doing. We're not just doing this for, um, you know, to make a big, dumb, punchy fight book, which ultimately it is, because that's what the game is. But um, almost Tom Taylor saying, I'm going to try to at least write deeper than that. And I think he does. And then we get Injustice 11, chapters 31 through 33, where Batman uh, is trying to get a hold of these pills. He gets the president to create a distraction for Superman. It doesn't work. Superman sees the heroes at the fortress. He thinks they're going after the Kents, which just makes him mental. He has a great fight with Captain Adam. Captain Adam uh just it's like one of the best versions of captain adam where he can he can be as strong as superman but then wonder woman comes in cuts his neck and then he blows up he blows up he takes wonder woman with her she's not dead but all the stuff is raining down on earth it was it was a good chapter i thought it was gruesome but there was something about it the power that they don't normally display in the main dc universe then there's a scene where green arrow is trying to defend himself He's trying to get the pills to Batman and the other members of that camp. Pa Kent gets accidentally shot with an arrow. That drives Superman nuts, and he starts punching Green Arrow. And Green Arrow's dying, and he says, The prettiest girl in the whole damn world, I was so lucky, as he envisions Black Canary. And I was like, ooh, wow, that that hit me. And look, a confrontation between Green Arrow and Superman has been boiling ever since Frank Miller's Dark Knight, so it's not like Injustice was the first. Then the final issue, issue 12, chapters 34 through 36. Ma Kent takes one of the pills so that she can stop Superman. Um, Superman's like, I gotta go and take care of Batman. Pa Kent is still there with the arrow in his arm. Ma Kent is there. Even Jor-El shows up. They're all trying to say to him, look, 
you got to stop this. But they they can't convince him. And Superman flies off. He goes to the Batcave. He tries to get Batman into a confrontation because, again, this is based on a video game. But Bruce Wayne says, look, you could kill me, but maybe the reason is maybe the reason you're here is because you want me to stop you and you know I can do it. He says, if I put on a giant metal suit and hit you over and over again, I can do it, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to fight you, Clark. I don't think I can beat you without killing you. I'm not like you. I'm not a murderer. And this is years before Batman versus Superman, the movie, right? But it's nice. It's, I, I liked it. It shows that, you know, at least in the comic, they're not going to go for the easy answer. And then Batman shows a video of Lois saying that he shouldn't lose his humanity. Uh, but of course, Superman goes bonkers and he banes Batman. He breaks his back. So Superman wins, you know, in video game terms, it took 12 issues, but he wins. He wins this round. He's standing over Batman. You, It's really just to show that Superman has just gone off the deep end. And then, in a great sequence, Alfred shows up. He has taken the pill. He headbutts Superman. These pills work really fast. And he saves Bruce Wayne and takes him away. And then it ends with Superman addressing the UN again, saying that he will save the world from Batman, whatever it takes. End year one. It's a romp. It's a complete romp with chapters that are well worth reading. Um, don't try to put any continuity to it. Don't try to put any like, well, this is what not what my Superman would do. This is not what my Wonder Woman would do. These are different characters. I said it before when I talked about Injustice before. Wonder Woman has often played this role. When we did Kingdom Come, she was like right on Superman's side. And she was a little blood, you know, thirsty in that story. In New Frontier, she did the same thing. So it's the um, personalities of these characters, even though they might be one note, they're not terribly far off from other versions. In many ways, it's almost like what Jim Shooter did with all the Marvel characters in the first Secret Wars. Let's bring them down to their base level, mix them up, make them do things maybe they wouldn't normally do in the regular universe, but that's okay because this is meant to sell something else. This is meant to be a high-octane, high-action story. Don't think about it so much, but look, we could get some writerly things out of it, which is pretty great, and I feel like that's what Injustice is doing. And the artwork is pretty good. We get some chapters by Bruno Redondo early on in his career. Those are probably the best. The Jeremy Rappick ones are fine. They stand out because they are very different in tone. The line work is very heavy. Uh, David Yarden feels a little similar to that. Then we get like Tom Derenick. He also does a few chapters. Um, you can always tell. He's, he's sort of a mix between Rappick and Redondo. Um, so those are fine. And, well, the less said about Marcus Miller, the better, considering the company that that artist keeps nowadays. But um, that's one of the other artists as well. So Injustice. Injustice Year One, done. I'm going to move on now to the next one. And I'm just going to keep continuing to read these as I can. And when I finish whatever the next uh, volume is, I'll come back and talk about it again. Does your podcast sound like this? Show I'm a host. My name is Steven. And a thousand miles over there to my right is another host, Mr. Ed Moore. Howdy, folks. And let me say. Well, what if it sounded like this instead? For show I'm a host. My name is Steven. And a thousand miles over there to my right is another host, Mr. Ed Moore. Howdy, folks. And let me say. Well, now it can. All right. Sorry to sound like a used car salesman here, but my name is Stephen Orr, and I host a variety of podcasts such as Just Another Fanboy, The Superman Super Show, and Hither Came Conan. But I'm also trying to get my foot into the podcast editing game. I mean, I have been recording and editing my own shows for years, and dang it, I want to cash in on that. So... <laughs> Tell me, do you love podcasting but hate editing? 
Do you have a number of episodes recorded, but no time at all to get them edited for release? Do you need help and you just aren't sure what to do? Well, I'm here to give you a solution. Hire me. I'll clean up your audio, beef up your sound, remove all your ums and your throat clearings and sneezes and burps, and I'll add your music and whatnot. And you know what? My prices are super reasonable. Just reach out to me at stevenorelse at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-E-V-E-N-O-R-R else at gmail.com. And we can talk. Tell me what you need and I'll let you know what I can do for you. And more importantly, quote you a cost. How do you know if I'm any good? Well, I edited this, didn't I? Stevenorelse at gmail.com. Email me today. Do you know who Harvey Ball is? Harvey Ball, a commercial artist from Worcester, Massachusetts, created the smiley face in 1963. I'm sure you recognize that symbol, the big yellow symbol with the black eyes, the smiley face. Think of the cover to Watchmen number one. It's a symbol that's supposed to represent goodwill and good cheer across the planet. So in order to keep that original intent, Harvey thought that we should devote one day each year to smiling and for kind acts throughout the world. Harvey declared that the first Friday in October each year would be World Smile Day. And it was first held in 1999, and it has continued every year, especially in Smiley's hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts, and around the world. Harvey died in 2001. They created the Harvey Ball World Smile Foundation in a way to honor his name, to honor his memory. And they are the official sponsor of World Smile Day each year. Today, October 6th, is World Smile Day. And in a little bit of contrast to the opening segment where, you know, uh, watching Tick, Tick, Boom, the, the race of life, that, that constant Tick, Tick, I thought, okay, let's, let's do something different here at the end. And I wanted to present the song Smile by Charlie Chaplin. Uh, as sung by Nat King Cole. Now, it was originally an instrumental for one of Charlie Chaplin's movies, and then later on they added lyrics uh, by Jeffrey Parsons and John Turner. And as I mentioned, uh, probably the most famous version of this is the Nat King Cole version. Yes, there is a Jimmy Durante version that you might know from the Joker trailer, that's probably where some of you heard it first, but obviously that has a whole other kind of connotation. The reason I'm playing it here, especially here at the end of this digest, um, I first heard it when it was played for my tap dance class by my college tap dance instructor at the time, who very much was a mentor to me and someone that I adored. And he told us to just listen to the song, listen to the words, try not to think so much about it. And as he played it, um, you know, that's what we did. We just sat there and listened to it. And then at, at the end of it, he just said goodbye and went, you know, left the room. And, and then that was it for that day. Um, and I think about that every now and then. When I found out today was World Smile Day, I thought, wow, that's the first thing I thought of, was that moment in my university years and how much that meant to me at that time. As a bookend to the opening segment, it's just a way to say, hey, get out of your head for a moment, slow down, just breathe, just relax, see what the song means to you, see what the lyrics mean to you. Do they make you think of someone, you know, go, go Bob Ross and, and take a moment out of your day and just think about someone or something that makes you smile because sometimes we need this kind of moment. 
Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear may be ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you'll just smile Email me, Peter, at thedailyrios.com. Visit the Daily Rios website and Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, send me your book club recommendations. Send me your promos. Send me your audio talkback clips. This has been the Daily Rios episode 639 for Saturday, October 7th, 2023. Talk to you soon. No animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall drink alcohol. Four legs good, two legs bad.